Well, good morning. Uh, as Matt said, I am not Jeremiah. Uh, for one, I do not have as long and as curly of hair as Jeremiah. I'm a slightly shorter, um, but I'm really excited to be with you guys today. I get the honor and privilege of being your BSM director on TCU's campus. Um, and so we get to be part of sending college students to the ends of the earth, and, and thank you to UBC for being a part of that. Um, Summers are very different for a college minister, especially at TCU because the campus is, is so dead. And I have a lot of people ask to say, Warren, is it a lot? Like, are you bored? Are you out of your mind? Are you, are you tired? And the reality is no. Like, my summers are actually incredibly busy. I just don't get to do it with students who are the passion and calling of my life. And so it's very, like, dry. And so this is, this is my fifth Sunday at a different church um, speaking and, and being a part of the message that Sunday. Um, one of the, the coolest parts of being a, a director of a BSM is that um, I get to be an extension of multiple local churches onto the college campus to see them glorify and exalt the Lord in their lives and to be able to send them on mission. But because of that, I get to tell the story of what God's doing at multiple churches. And so Sarah and I were talking about, we, we had one, we were at a church right after school ended. We've been, this is our third week, third week, fourth week. This is our third church in three weeks. And so we are so glad, after all the travel and everything that we've done, to be back home with you guys. Um, there's a lot of different things. I, I laugh quite often because uh, the, the home I grew up in, it was a very small town. And the running joke when we first moved here, a year ago this week, we moved to Fort Worth um, to be a part of what's going on here. And I think a year ago today was our first time to visit UBC um, and as we were looking for a church home. And so thank you, for one, for loving my family well and to welcoming, welcoming us with open arms. Um, but as we looked towards Fort Worth, it was kind of funny because we moved from small towns. And so we moved to Fort Worth, and all of a sudden there were Chick-fil-A drive throughs Never experienced that in my life. Never lived somewhere where I had a Chick-fil-A drive through um, But not only that, we got to be a part of a loving church community um, that loves us well. And so we have enjoyed our one-year anniversary in Fort Worth. Thank you guys for making the transition easy. We came from some really awesome, loving church homes, um, and UBC has been um, one of those that have just added to the love that is between brothers and sisters in Christ. So thank you guys for being here this morning. I want to give you a brief update of what's happening at the BSM. Um, we have made it through our first year there. And so we have gotten to see a couple of students come to know Christ for the first time. We got to send students on mission. I'm going to adjust this mic really slightly, so I apologize if I mess that up. It's, it's hitting my beard, so I apologize. Let it say it again. I can pull it out a little bit. Perfect. I don't want to break something. Okay. I'm just a, be- a visitor. Okay. So uh, we've gotten to send students on mission and exalt in that. Uh, we've gotten to see kind of the first fruits of a discipleship culture on TCU's campus. So out of, we've got a team of seven leaders and we've got about 24 students in discipleship. And when, what I mean when I say discipleship is we're equipping those students in how to read the Bible in a way that shapes their life, how to share the gospel on campus with their peers, how to do life inside the church with other believers, how to do life outside of the church with not yet believers or not yet Christians. NYCs is what we call them, okay? Um, and so we are getting to equip students in all of these things. And the reason that, that is so important um, is because of the fact, and we just learned this in Kyle Johnson's uh, breakout class, intergenerational Sunday school class this morning, which were amazing. If you didn't get to go to one of those, you need to do that before they're over in July. Um, but the whole point of why we do that is because it's not the responsibility of a pastor or someone that stands on stage to explain the gospel or to pre- pre- uh, 
pronounce the gospel. It's our responsibilities as believers. And so what's it look like for me as a BSM director? I may can meet with 10 students a week consistently, but what's it look like to engage and equip all the students that God has brought to our ministry to engage others? And so if each one of them, they've got classes, they've got full-time jobs, but what does it look like if instead of me reaching 10 students, I equip 10 students to reach five each? We're talking about a multiplication movement, and that only increases because they equip students who equip students who equip students, so much so that when they graduate, we're not graduating seniors, we're sending missionaries into the world. And that looks a lot of different ways. Some of them will go into full-time ministry and get to do exactly what I do in a church context or maybe in a, a college con- campus context or maybe they'll be youth ministers or maybe they'll be Sunday school teachers or deacons or whatever that looks like. But what's it like to send people into the workforce as missionaries? Because the Lord doesn't only exist. The Lord doesn't only um, work inside of a church building. Everything under the sun is the Lord's. And so that means every vocational calling is sacred. There is no sacred and secular when it comes to the Lord. There is only sacred. And so, for example, I have a former student right now. It's just, she's just starting her first year. She graduated from um, a place that I used to work at. And she always, for the, her whole entire life, as a middle schooler, she would volunteer at a zoo. Um, and she worked with the zookeepers. She did the different training things. She worked snow cone stands. She did everything. She loved the zoo. And so she came to college. She specifically studied animal, uh, I actually can't remember the exact title of her thing, but the whole point, it was like animal studies, okay? And it wasn't, everyone else was like, yeah, I'm going to be a vet. And she was like, I want to be a zookeeper. Like, that's my life. And for one, how cool a job is that? Okay, you get to hang out for elephant, with the elephants for fun. I mean, that's, this is amazing, right? Um, but she graduated and said, the Lord wants me to use my life for his glory. But he didn't call me to a vocational ministry, and so what do I do with that? And so the world come and see God's creation on display. And she said, how can I leverage this for the sake of the gospel? And so the zoo that she ended up at becomes a sending hub for zoo trainers all around the world. And so she, so she looked at the people around her and said, these people get to do life right up front next to some of God's most magnificent and complex creations, both on a cellular level but also on a physical level. And so how can I help share the gospel with everybody I work with? And because of the, the, the zoo that she's at, sending zoo trainers to, to other zoos around the world, how can this place become a hub of sending Christians into zoos all over the world? If we equip the people in our pews, if we equip the people that we do life around around us, if we equip ourselves to make disciples who make disciples, then it becomes a movement that, is, that could not be contained in, in a church wall no matter how many seats we had here. And so that's what I get to do on TCU's campus every day, and I really want to thank you guys for allowing me to do that, because without the local church, without individuals, we wouldn't get to do that. And so, with that being said, thank you, UBC, for flying the banner of the kingdom of God and not just your name. Um, I, there's a lot of churches that fly a banner of a logo, and sometimes it's all about the logo. Thank you, UBC, for being one that flies the banner of the kingdom of God. Thank you for investing in the leaders of your church. Thank you for investing in the next generation. Um, Jason Simon, our youth minister, has an amazing, which the youth are headed to camp this week, which is awesome. Um, Jason has an amazing article on the church website about um, our youth and the next generation are not the church of tomorrow, they're, they're the church of today. 
Um, thank you for investing in the church of today, tomorrow's leaders, um, today's leaders, today's church. Thank you for investing in them because I get to be a part of college students because of that. And last but not least, thank you for investing in me and my family and loving us well. Whether it was my wife, Sarah, myself, our six-and-a-half-month-old daughter, Ren, thank you. I think some of you guys know Ren and have no idea who we are, which is the lay. I love it, uh, and I just really appreciate that. Um, so thank you for being a part. If you ever want to know what's happening at the BSM or like even want to be on our um, email update list. We have a team of both financial and prayer supporters. If you would like to be a part of our prayer team and you want to get our monthly emails, come see me after the service today. I'll be right up front. I've got a little quick 30-second survey you can fill out and get your email address, and I'd love for you to be a part of that. But this morning, we're going to be looking at Acts 16. And so if you want to turn to Acts 16, um, we're going to be looking specifically at Paul and Silas in prison. Um, but a lot of us, if you if you here this morning, you have a saving relationship with Christ. At some point, you may have believed that following Jesus was, I mean, no, excuse me, you, you know that following Jesus was the most important decision in your own life, but at some point in faith, you trusted Christ. And just maybe you were led to believe that being a Christ follower would take away a lot of the troubles you faced. And maybe no one said it out loud, but in your mind, you thought that following Jesus meant things would be easier, right? Life maybe would be less difficult if Christ, if I became a believer, like all my troubles would go away. I mean, we know that's not true because in 2 Timothy 3.12, Paul voiced the problem with this way of thinking where he said, all who desire to live a godly life in Christ Jesus will be persecuted. That's 2 Timothy 3.12. But yet many people assume that Jesus will fix everything in their world. And when that doesn't happen, they question the love of Jesus and his plan for their lives. But why is that? Um, and maybe at the root of all those ideas or maybe those false ways of thinking, it's this, maybe this lie that says, what loving God would allow his children to face trials and persecution? For a lot of us, this cycle sounds familiar, um, and it's because it plays out in the lives of Christ followers just like us every day. Um, the challenge, therefore, is, is not to redefine how God loves us, okay, but it's to redefine the cost of following a Christ in a world that is opposed to him and his followers, And so here's kind of our overarching theme for all of today, okay? And for those that are type A note takers and you need really, like, strict notes, I'm actually going to give them to you on the screen, okay? You're welcome. There's my free gift for today. So here's our overarching theme. God's love for you cannot be viewed through what happens to you, but must be viewed through what happened to him. Okay, I'm going to read it again. God's love for you can't be viewed through what happens to you, but instead must be viewed through what happened to him. The measurement of God's love for us starts on the cross, not in the varying array of circumstances we find ourselves in. And even though that sounds really easy, and it sounds like a, an easy thing to kind of die, to ingest and digest, okay, we, I have found most of the college students I do life with, most of the adults I've gotten the, the chance to sit down and have this discussion with, For some reason, we feel like God's left us because of the the circumstances we're in. And so we're going to look at Acts 16 today, and I'm going to pray for us, and then I'm going to kind of ask you to pray as well. I'm going to switch it up a little bit. So let me pray for us and open our time together. God, thank you for this chance where we get to come together to study your word and worship you. God, I pray that we would be focused on you, that we glorify what you're doing, and God, through Acts 16, through looking at Paul and Silas in prison, Lord, that you would help us to see where you're at in the midst of our circumstances in everyday life. God, I'm not naive enough to, to understand or think that we all come in, in here this morning and our lives are hunky-dory. 
God, there's hurt, there's brokenness, because we live in a hurt and broken world. And so God, help us to see where you are at and to see where you are working in the midst of those trials, in the midst of persecution, in the midst of that heaviness as we look at your word this morning. And then where you're seated, if you would, would you pray for ourselves as well? Uh, Would you pray that the distractions that we come in here with would be removed? Would you pray for the people next to you that we would be fo- they would be focused as well? And then last but not least, would you pray for me and that I would speak exactly what God wants me to and not anything more, not anything less? God, we pray that you'd move and that you'd speak and we pray all these things in your name. Amen. Okay, so we're going to be in Acts 16. Um, I'm going to speak kind of quickly, so I apologize. I've had a lot of coffee this morning. Um, But we open up in Acts 16, um, and we kind of come at this time. Jesus has risen from the grave. Um, The gospel is spreading. Who Jesus is is spreading. There's intense persecution, and and because of that intense persecution, the gospel and the, the believers of that time were spread all throughout the earth, and as they went, the gospel went with them, okay? And so we were starting to see the early church first being born um, as people were being sent out. And because of that, Paul and Silas are sent out as missionaries to share the gospel and to start churches all around the world. And they've had a lot of success in that. Um, We're going to talk a little bit about it, but the beginning of chapter 16 is one of my favorite verses in our favorite chapters in all of Acts for a couple of different reasons. Um, One, I read the book of Acts every July and August, right before school starts. Because for me, as a college minister, I want to be reminded of what the Holy Spirit can do um, in the midst of a new people group in a new place. And so every year, about July, August-ish, right before class gets here, I reread all the book of Acts. Because the same Holy Spirit that moved and did a tremendous thing in the books of Acts is the same Holy Spirit that resides in each one of us if we're a believer in Christ. But the reason that I really enjoy chapter 16 is completely selfish, so forgive me, okay? Chapter 16, the Holy Spirit stops Paul from going to South Asia. He was doing some other things there. God knew what he was doing. Um, But because of that, Paul goes to Macedonia, and if you trace it back, that's when Europe becomes evangelized. And so because of that, we get to sit here about 2,000 years later um, as kind of part of the, the church that was started in those areas. We're a continuation of that, including 1776, when July 4th happened um, and we became a nation. And so because of Acts 16, we are here today because of what God was doing in that time. So it's one of my favorite chapters to read of all of Acts. And we go to chapter 16, um, verse 19 through 20, or excuse me, we're going to start in chapter 16, verse 16, where we find Paul and Silas in prison. And so if you want to read with me, let's, let's go for it. And they'll actually be on the screen as well. So verse 16, once as we were on our way to prayer, a slave girl met us who had a spirit by which she predicted the future. She made a large profit for her owners by fortune-telling. As she followed Paul and us, she cried out, These men who are proclaiming to you the way of salvation are the servants of the Most High God. She did this for many days. Paul was greatly annoyed, and turning to the Spirit, he said, I command you in the name of Jesus Christ to come out of her, and it came out right away. 
When her owner realized that their hope of profit was gone, they sized, seized Paul and Silas and dragged them into the marketplace to the authorities. Bringing them before the chief magistrates, they said, these men are seriously disturbing our city. They are Jews and are promoting customs that are not legal for us as Romans to adopt or practice. The crowd joined in the attack against them, and the chief magistrates stripped off their clothes and ordered them to be beaten with rods. After they had severely flogged them, they threw them in jail, ordering the jailer to guard them carefully. Receiving such an order, he put them into the inner prison and secured their feet in the stocks. And so right off the bat, we see Paul and Silas thrown into prison, which for us, and kind of as you heard in the children's sermon earlier, um, we instantly think of that as a bad thing. Um, we look at Paul and Silas's obedience and say, um, were, they, were Paul and Silas obedient to what God had asked? And the answer is yes, right? Which in our mind, in a sense of justice, okay, that we, we kind of view in our own uh, way of thinking, we say, okay, they did what God asked, so therefore, they'll be rewarded, right? But if we follow that train of logic, what were they rewarded with? Prison! Chains! In the inner, in like the inner sanctum of the prison, not just like the edge of the prison, okay? They were like in the inner sanctum of the prison. They were highly guarded, right? Which doesn't make any sense when we think about it in our kind of sense of justice. Um, and I always, just kind of backing up for a second, the first time I ever heard this story as a kid, I was always like, why did Paul cast out this, this spirit that was making them say who they were, right? They, the spirit didn't say someone they weren't. Uh, she says in verse 17, these men who are proclaiming to you the way of salvation are the servants of the most high God. That sounds like a proclamation, right? That sounds like a great thing. But as you think about it, on a college campus, even though I would say that I do the same thing as Paul and Silas were here, if I had someone following me around that said, hey, check out Warren, he's sharing the gospel, he's gonna tell you all these things, it's very hard to do my job, <laughs> okay? The same as it would be for you. If someone followed you to work every day and said, hey, this is, fill your name in here, and they work here, but they're sharing the gospel with everybody they meet. There's this off-puttingness, um, and there's this difficulty in doing what God's asked us to do um, when the attention is on us and not on the, the gospel we represent, not on the Christ we serve, right? And so maybe Paul, it said Paul was greatly annoyed, which gives me hope every time I'm annoyed. Paul got annoyed. I can get annoyed. It's okay. Um, but Paul was greatly annoyed, and he cast out the Spirit, and therefore putting them in prison. So did they do what God had asked? Yes. But did God reward them with an easy life? No. They were put into prison. Um, and God, that brings us to our first point. Let me get to our first point here. God cares more about our holiness and obedience than he does our happiness. This story in Acts 16 directly flies in the face of this idea or this, um, I'm almost going to call it a cultural thing, this cultural idea that if we serve the Lord, our lives will be easy. Because Paul and Silas served the Lord and they got thrown into jail. God cares more about our holiness and obedience than he does our happiness. And I know the instant pushback on that is go, well, but God loves me. Doesn't he want what's best for me? Yes, that's completely true. And so one of the things I like to do when we talk about words or, or maybe happiness or obedience is I like to look at the definition. And so the Merriam-Webster definition of happiness, um, I give you one A and one B, okay? One A is a state of well-being, a state of contentment. And the synonym for that is joy, okay? So joy could be used for that definition. But definition one B is probably the one we think most of when we think of happiness, which is a pleasurable or satisfying experience, and a lot of times I think we look at God and we, we think that God's going to give us a happy life, a life based on good experiences, when the broken world offers up 
a lot of things that are different than those, joy, those happy experiences. And so in that, happiness is based on a fleeting emotion where God cares more about our focus on him because he's the source of joy. He's a, our content, if our contentment is found in experiences, our, our happiness or our joy, if you will, will only last the, the duration of that experience. And on a world that's marked by temporary things, okay, the only thing that doesn't run out is God, is the Lord. And so is our happiness based on those temporary experiences or is it based on the thing that won't run out, that endures forever past time and eternity, the Lord? When we get frustrated at where the Lord has us, it's usually based on our understanding of what's best for us. So sometimes in the midst of those things, we can look up and cry out foul. We can cry, look up and say, God, why would God put me in this situation? It doesn't make any sense. It doesn't make me happy. It's obviously God has left me or forsaken me, which we know that's not true because the Bible says it's not. The Lord never leaves us or forsakes us, nor forsakes us. And so anytime that we get frustrated, it's because of our perverted sense of justice. It's really hard for us as humans, as broken people, to separate out this idea that um, justice where it doesn't involve or benefit us. Okay, and so when we get frustrated where the Lord has us, it's usually based on our understanding of what's best for us. So I have a cousin, and they have several different, they have, they have three kids, um, but their oldest one is a rule follower. How many of you have had a, a child that was a rule follower? Anybody? My wife's a rule follower. I've repented of my rule followingness, okay? But, so they, their oldest child was a rule follower, and about three years old, she was very articulate, very smart child. Um, they started teaching her driving rules, okay? Not because they were gonna put her in the, in the front seat of a car at three years old or anything like that, but because she was such a curious child, she always asked about street signs and directions and what does the green light mean and what does the red light mean? And so there came this point in time where her dad, my cousin, would turn right on red, and if you know anything about driving, which I hope you do, you're all here this morning, okay? Um, if you know anything about driving, right on red kind of goes against what red stands for in the driving world, right? Red means stop, but you can still turn right on red in most situations. But for my three-year-old cousin's child, this was irreconcilable, okay? She was like, Daddy, you cannot turn on red. Like, it is, you are turning right. You are going to get us hurt. You are going to get us in a wreck. You cannot turn right on red. And no matter how many times my cousin explained it to her, she still could not get over the fact that you could turn right on red. In a lot of ways, we do the same thing with God. So we are like a small child in the backseat of a car. Um, we need assistance on being fed, on changing diapers. I have a child. Man, you change a lot of diapers. Um, being fed, changing diapers, putting on our clothes, zipping up our pants, everything like that. But yet, she would still try to tell my adult cousin how to drive, how to get from point A to point B. And we do the same thing with the Lord. We only see a very small glimpse of what's going on in the world around us, whereas God in his all omniscience and all-knowing like, sees all things, and yet we are like a child in a backseat saying, God, this is what's best for me. This is what needs to happen, where God sees the full picture. And so when we get frustrated at the circumstances that we're in, whether that's hurt or maybe it's, it's not as profitable a circumstance as we'd like it to be, we get frustrated where the Lord has us because it's based on our understanding, our small, finite understanding of what's best for us. And so when we look at Paul and Silas, what is their response to these things? Because being thrown in jail is a major ordeal, especially in a Roman government that views any kind of uprising or any kind of momentum as a possible threat to their dominance or to their governance. 
And so they throw Paul and Silas in prison. Their circumstances are pretty dire. They could face death for this if it goes long, long enough. And let's look at verse 25 and 26 and see what they were doing. Verse 25. About midnight, Paul and Silas were praying and singing hymns to God, and the prisoners were listening to them. So in the midst of all this trial and all these persecutions and being thrown in jail for being obedient to the Lord, what are Paul and Silas doing? They are singing. Okay, you've heard of singing in the rain. This is singing in the chains. Okay, like this is, they're thrown in prison. There's, this situation is dire, um, but they could sing because they knew because of what the gospel is that God loved them. And so this brings us to our second point, okay? We must view our circumstances through the lens of the gospel. And so what do we mean when we say that? The gospel at its core is the fact that because of our imperfection, because of our sin, because of the fact that we stand in enmity with God because of our imperfection, a God that is known as perfect and holy, that we deserve death. And if you think about that, sometimes with that sense of justice, we say, hey, that's not fair. But the reality is we have the same rules here on this side of heaven, too. If you lie to your parents, you get grounded. Okay, I know none of you ever lied to your parents, but if you did, you got grounded, right? Um, if you lie to a teacher, you get sent to a principal, a higher authority. Um, if you get prince lied to if you lie to a principal of a school, depending on how major the lie is, you can be sent to, uh, we called it off-campus school, which was like you didn't want to go to. People, different people call it ISS is what we called it. Um, different people call it different things, but you get sent away. Um, if you lie to a police officer, you can be thrown in jail. Um, if you lie to a Supreme Court or a congressman, um, you can be sent to a more important jail, okay? And if you stood across from the President of the United States and you directly lied about a piece of information, that can be seen as treason. You can be seen as a threat to the freedom enjoyed by others, and therefore, you can be put to death for, for treason in the United States. And so you'll notice that as the level of authority of the person that you're, you're sinning against, the person that you're being imperfect Two increases, the punishment increases as well. And so we look at it and say, the President of the United States can condemn me to death because of a lie I told, how much more so the very one that created the United States, that created the world, that created authority and life. And so because of that, something had to die. And so Jesus, in his perfection, being fully God and fully man, stands in our place and takes the death that excuse me, takes the death that he deserves, uh, that we deserve, and takes it upon our, his self so that we can be presented to God as perfect, as holy. And the beautiful thing about this, and the thing I want to stress and emphasize as I continue to mess up this mic, the thing that I want to stress and emphasize is that perfection in its definition is a one-time deal. So the first time that you mess up, the first time that we fall short, there is no going back to that. Ephesians 2, 8, 9 says, you are saved by grace through faith, and this is not from yourselves. It is God's gift from works so that no one can boast. Because of our imperfection, we can never regain that status of perfection ever again. And so because of that, there's a lot of people that will try to earn their way into heaven, but what separates us from heaven is imperfection. And so no matter how many good things that they do, it never fully reinstates them back into that perfection emblem, right? But that's what makes the love of God what Jesus did so important. It's unconditional because it's, it's not defined by a condition. And so in that, when Paul and Silas look at their situation and look at their circumstances, they can sing and pray because they know that God loves them because of the gospel. 
a God that had, did not look at, down at his people and say, man, I really need people to worship me. I guess I'll die for these people. God doesn't need us in the equation, but it's only out of an unconditional love for us that we get to worship him, that we get to be a part. Romans 1 says creation worships him. He doesn't need our, our words or our, our actions or our gestures. Instead, the gospel, Jesus coming down to earth was be out of a love for us. And so when Paul and Silas look at their situation, they know because of Jesus' life they are loved. They are not forgotten. And so it's easy to sing. It's easy to, I had a friend um, who said that happy children sing. It's easy to sing and know that they're loved because of what the gospel is. And if you look at the rest of chapter 16, you see that played out all throughout the chapter. So you had Lydia, this dealer in purple cloth, had high socioeconomic status, um, and we can go into it. It's a whole other sermon for another time. But Lydia, uh, dealer in purple cloth, had her own house. Her husband is not mentioned, which means that she was a woman in high standing, which is a big deal in this time and age. She is known by the people, by the, the courts, by um, the the marketplace, she is known. The gospel comes into her life, transforms, and not only transforms her life, she offers up what she has to Paul and Silas to use. Then this opposite end of the spectrum, you have this servant girl who has no economic standing. She's a servant, she doesn't have rights, she doesn't have um, any say, any voice in the matter. And not only that, she is being taken advantage of. This, this thing that is oppressing her life and uh, causing her not to be able to live in a way that God had created her to be, this spirit of divination. Um, not only did she have no standing in the, the world or the culture at the time, she was being oppressed and people were marketing off of her oppression. So already in the, the men's eyes that held her captive, she was not just a person, she was a source of income. And so you had Lydia, this high socioeconomic standing. The gospel transforms her life. Then you have this servant girl um, who has no standing, a complete opposite end of the spectrum. The gospel transforms her life. Has nothing to Not only that, it's the story of a king dying for the peasant. The peasant has nothing to offer the king, but out of love, the king dies for the commoner, the peasants. Um, and you can see that played out in our movies. You can see that played out to our medias because inside, deep inside each one of us, we desire to see the strong defend the weak because the creator that we were made in the image of did the same for us. So you've got those two ends of the social spectrum. You've got the, the high end, the low end. The gospel transforms both lives. Both lives are dramatically changed because of it. But then you come to Paul. Paul in his very life, someone who was antagonistic violently, aggressively towards the people that worship God. Paul, in his, like, in his sin, in his anger and in violence, was radically changed. And someone who persecuted the gospel, persecuted people who followed Christ, all of a sudden becomes their chief executor. And so maybe you're here this morning and you're like, I, I don't know if I, um, if I fall within the realms of the grace that the Lord extends. I don't know if I am good enough for God. I don't know if I have enough to offer for the Lord. Acts 16 is a perfect example of every end of the spectrum. High end, low end, people that are against the Lord. The way I word it for college students is, have you killed any Christians lately? I hope the answer is no, but if the answer is yes, you are still eligible. In fact, you're so eligible, he wrote most of the New Testament. So you'd be in a pretty high class of people, okay? And so, but that's the reality of what Acts 16 is. 
The gospel is for all people. It doesn't matter what you bring to the table. The Lord still dies for you. It doesn't matter how ugly or evil or dark your life is. The gospel extends to you. I believe it was Charles Spurgeon, and I, you can quote me later and, and see if I'm wrong, but there is no evil that outruns the grace of the Lord. There is no sin or sinner that can out the grace that the Lord extends, the love that the Lord, the gospel, the cross extends. And so back to Acts 16, um, Paul and this Roman guard, someone who is violently opposed to God. Um, because God loved them, he had them in that prison for a reason. Um, and so we must view our situation through the lens of the gospel. Um, in the light of the gospel, these things seem small, and so as happy children we can sing, but God is still at work. And so Acts 16, verse 27 through 24, God uses divine interruption to reveal his glory. So let's take a look at that. Verse 26. Suddenly, there was such a violent earthquake that the foundations of the jail were shaken, and immediately all the doors were opened and everyone's chains came loose. When the jailer woke up and saw the doors of the prison standing open, he drew his sword and was going to kill himself since he thought the prisoners had escaped. But Paul called out in a loud voice, Don't harm yourself because we're all here. The jailer called for lights and rushed in and fell down trembling before Paul and Silas. He escorted them out and said, Sirs, what must I do to be saved? They said, believe in the Lord Jesus and you will be saved, you and your household. Verse 32, and they spoke the word of the Lord to him along with everyone in his house. And he took them the same hour of the night and washed their wounds. Right away, he and all his family were baptized. And he brought them into his house, set a meal before them and rejoiced because he had come to believe in God with his entire household. So not only did Paul and Silas go free, but the guard and his entire household became followers of Jesus. Paul and Silas's physical chains led to the breaking of the spiritual chains that were around this Roman guard and his family. And so you've got your high culture, the gospel changes their life. You've got the lowest end of culture, the gospel changes their life. And you've got this Roman guard and Paul, people who were antagonistic and against the very spread of who Jesus was, um, all all presented as new before God. So because of Christ, we understand that despite our circumstances, we anchor in adversity, knowing that God is going to teach us something in the midst of our trials. We see obstacles as opportunity. We begin to look for miracles because we trust that God is at work. And so in the midst of our trials and our persecution, instead of complaining, we can praise, just as Paul and Silas did in the jail. And so what does this mean for us? And then we'll wrap up. In the midst of our trials and persecutions, maybe it's bad news, maybe it's medical health, maybe it's loss, um, maybe it's financial. Uh, in a broken world, there's, a, there's an infinite number of possibilities it can be. James 1 says that we should rejoice in trials of many kinds because they produce steadfast and endurance. And, but sometimes that's hard to see. And so here's what we look at in, in Acts 16. In the midst of our trials and persecution, God does not leave us or forsake us. The very identity and, and definition of what the gospel is and Christ's sacrifice for us leads to believe that God loves us despite what we can offer him or the situations that we're in. And so because of that, um, God does not leave us or forsake us. So in the midst of the darkness around us, when we can see no hope or no way out, we know that God is still at work. And the God of acts, the God of miracles, the God of the early church is still the same God, the same Holy Spirit that resides in acts and, and, and moves in each one of us. And so the application for us today is as we go about our lives, as we go to the places, those sacred callings that God has put each one of us in, man, where is God at work? 
How do we move to where, he's, where he is moving? How do we be a part of what he's doing? I had a, a, someone pray over us one time that um, their prayer for, uh, it was me and a group of college students that God would not, it would not be said that God worked in spite of us, but God worked through us. And so how is God working and how can we um, put ourselves in a place where God can work through us? So I'm going to pray. And if you, if you are, for the first time, if you're wondering and processing through, okay, if there's no evil or no darkness in my life um, that extends me outside of the grace of the Father, uh, when I repent and turn from those things. I mean, if you're processing that for the first time and need to talk to somebody, um, I'm gonna be on the front row. Caroline is actually gonna be down here at front to, to talk to you about that. If you wanna join the church or do something of that nature, it's been a great decision for my wife and I. Um, um, Caroline will be here to, to talk to you about that. If you need someone to pray for you, I'm here at the front. There's a couple other people and staff members in the front as well. Um, we love you and wanna care for you in those things. So let me pray for us and we'll move on to what's next. God, thank you so much for the truth that even in the midst of our circumstances that don't make sense based on our sense of what's right and wrong, that God, you are still at work and you want what's best for us, that you love us enough to die for us even though we had nothing to offer, that we were peasants in the midst of your kingdom and we, even though we had nothing to, nothing to offer, um, you still died and gave up your life for us. Lord, I pray that we would be humble and God, as we assess the situation around us, as we assess the people we do life with, God, that we would see where you are at work and not complain about the circumstances that you're in, but ask the questions and praise of how you are going to use our circumstances to glorify your name and to exalt your kingdom. God, I pray that you would move. God, help us to, be, to keep our eyes focused on you and not on the things of the world, our circumstances. So we just pray all these things in your name. Amen. Thank you.